In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. When I was little, uh, I played baseball, uh, but I wasn't very good. Uh, I kind of peaked at t-ball. Uh, I could throw the ball a long way, but I could not throw it straight. And I could hit it a long way, but not very often. And in fact, I could, I could bat okay in practice, but when I got up to the plate in the games, with all those boys my age looking back at me in the other uniforms, I just got really nervous. And, and so I would, what I would do is I would just wait for the perfect pitch. I just convinced myself. And when that pitch came, I was going to hit it. But it, the per- perfect pitch never came. And uh, almost all the time, every time that I uh, got a bat, I struck out or walked, depending on how, how good the pitcher was. But um, my last season, uh, when I was 10 years old, uh, it was late in the season, and I had had two bloop singles the whole season long. And I came to the plate, and the bases were loaded. And I had decided, a really, probably at the behest of my uh, father's vicarious suggestion, uh, that I was not going to wait for the perfect pitch this time. But I knew enough to know that if I waited at all, uh, that I was going to get nervous. And so first pitch, I swung away, and that ball took off into deep right center field. And I took off towards first base, and the first base coach started screaming, go to third, go to third. And I, ran, I took off around second base, and I, I can see it right now. But I, the, that third baseman was calling for the ball, and I was running as hard as my tubby little 10-year-old 10, 10 self could run. And I got to the third base just as the ball did, but he dropped it. And I saw the ball on the ground, and I took off towards home. And he threw it to the catcher, but he threw it wide. Grand slam! (laughs) Now, granted, it was technically probably a triple because there was a couple of errors involved, but in my heart, it has for 34 years always been a grand slam. I had a lot of opportunities that season, but I had one really good at bat. And that brings us, as I'm sure you were thinking, to the Apostle Peter. Um, We love Peter because we see him striking out all the time, right? He is impetuous. His mouth gets him into trouble. The guy's got a lot of opportunities. But today, we see him step up to the plate and have one really good at bat. So we're in the fifth week of John chapter 6, and we have um, uh, been, it seems like since uh, Memorial Day, we have been in John chapter 6, not quite that long, but the Bread of Life discourse, uh, and just to give you a little context, in case you're just tuning in, uh, Jesus had fed the the 5,000, that crowd, the miracle bread and fish and many in the crowd found him. It looks like the next day, and, and, and what did they want? They wanted more bread. And uh, he told them, actually, I am the true bread. I am the bread of life. If you feed on me, you'll have eternal life. Well, that's not what they wanted to hear. Uh, of course, what he meant was the physical miracle bread was a symbol pointing you to the, the true spiritual bread 
uh, but it, you know, he actually doesn't say that it's a metaphor. He just goes deeper and deeper and, um, with the metaphor, and it, the language is really probably very offensive. Uh, even it could have been perceived as being against the law of Moses, because to eat human flesh uh, was against the law, and to drink blood of any kind from any being uh, was against the law because blood contained life. It's the, where we get the term uh, lifeblood. And so the crowd that earlier in the chapter had wanted to make him their king is now getting very frustrated with Jesus. And our passage picks it up late in the conversation, really the height of the tension. And Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Whoever feeds on me will live because of me. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And these people who have been following Jesus, the Scripture calls them disciples. They're not the twelve, uh, but they've been following Him. They say, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? And, and it might be helpful to know that the word that is translated there, difficult, doesn't mean hard to understand. It means hard to accept. The word can be translated violent, offensive rough. This teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? And they leave. They don't leave because they don't understand. They leave because they do understand. Maybe not in full, but surely they understood that Jesus wasn't saying, eat my arm. Ah. He was saying, at the very least, or they understood at the very least, that Jesus has moved outside the boundaries of what they consider acceptable for a religious teacher. And so Jesus turns to the twelve and says, what about y'all? Are you going to leave too? And Peter steps up to the plate, bat in hand, and says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Grand slam for Peter, though there had been a few errors on the other side. Um, so here's the question I've been wrestling with. So I've been looking at this passage all week. What's the difference? What's the difference between the group that left and the small group that stayed? Why did one crowd leave in frustration and the small group stay with such conviction? Why was one crowd so offended by what Jesus had to say, and yet the other crowd was comforted and encouraged by the very same words? Even to say, you have the words of eternal life. So I want to just try to get into the mindset of each group and see if perhaps we can identify which group we might be in. And if we are in the first then perhaps we can move towards the second. So the first group, and again, I can't imagine that they thought, they really thought that Jesus was actually talking about flesh and blood, uh, but they hadn't come to figure out riddles. And they had come for the show. They wanted the bread. They wanted the miracles. They hadn't come even really to seek out eternal life or reconciliation with God. They wanted bread. They wanted the miraculous. And Jesus kind of starts messing things up when he starts talking about eternal life and 
uh, spiritual satisfaction, feeding on him, and particularly when he says he is the source of eternal life. He doesn't say, be a good person and you'll get eternal life. He doesn't say, obey God's law and eternal life will be your reward. In fact, he says that eternal life isn't really about you and what you do. It's about where you get your nourishment. And I think that that's why they leave. I mean, maybe they, did, they had been put off by the vulgarity of the metaphor, eating flesh and drinking blood, but these weren't the prudish Pharisees. These were common people. And you know how common people talk. I think it's what's far more offensive to them than eating flesh and drinking blood is the idea that eternal life is not a moral reward. But it's a relational gift. The idea that's offensive is that eternal life comes not uh, from being better than most according to God's law, but from being nourished by a person. The idea that eternal life is ultimately outside of our control and our responsibility. Eternal life that Jesus is speaking about is not a pat on the back or affirmation for a life well lived. Eternal life that Jesus is talking about takes away our ability to pass judgment on others who are doing bad things. Eternal life that Jesus is talking about takes away our ability to declare warmly at funerals that they're in a better place because they were good without any regard to Jesus' intervening grace. Eternal life that Jesus is talking about is unconventional, but uncomfortable, and in fact to them, unacceptable. What do you mean eternal life isn't earned? I'm out of here. This is a difficult teaching. And I agree. I wonder if you've uh, read the 1972 novel by Ira Levin, or maybe probably uh, seen one of the various films, varying acclaim, The Stepford Wives. You've seen that? Men of the fictional town of Stepford, Connecticut, engineer wives that are hopelessly docile and uh, submissive, impossibly beautiful, and just they're always doing whatever the husbands want. It uh, is perfect, really, from uh, the man's perspective. That got a laugh at 8 o'clock, but it was humiliating, uh, from, it's humiliating from the woman's perspective, of course. And, and in fact, uh, it was probably very socially progressive in 1972 when it came out, but One of the reasons that that sort of uh, situation would be so offensive is because it's actually not a relationship, right? It's only one way. There's no give and take. uh, One gets its way and the other just goes along, and that's not marriage, right? uh, There's no uh, give and take. That's not a relationship. But the truth is, the reason I bring that up is because many of us want a Stepford God, a Stepford Jesus that he thinks what we think. And when that gets challenged, it gets dismissed. 
I mean, how many times have you ever heard someone say, I could never believe in a God that fill in the blank? Even if what's in that blank is biblical. And that's what these other disciples wanted. Affirmation, miracles, bread. But when Jesus starts in with, I'm the bread of life, eat my flesh and drink my blood, I'm out of here. But you know, if we have a God that only thinks like we do, then we don't have a relationship with the true and living God. We have a Stepford God. Now these disciples, they don't really seem to have gotten irate like the Pharisees do. They just kind of wander away. They don't show up next Sunday, right? They just they move on perhaps to a teacher that agrees with them. How, how resistant are we when God wants to sand off the rough edges? How quick are we to dismiss as outdated something that we read in God's Word that challenges what we believe? And, you know, sometimes we see this when someone, for instance, they come to understand that Jesus was punished for our sin. That sounds medieval or yucky. Or someone understands the claim that Jesus actually bodily rose from the dead. That seems impossible. Or that his resurrection defeated death on a cosmic scale. Well, that seems not really to go with my experience. I mean, you go on and on. Well, I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you can identify that. Do, do we move on to a God that's more manageable? Well, that's deep breath. Take it. That's the, other, that's the first group. What about the other group? What about the twelve? They stick around. So what's the difference? So impetuous Peter, get behind me Satan, Peter, knocks it out of the park when he says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And I find it hard to believe that Peter just had a stronger stomach for talking about things like eating flesh and drinking blood. And we also know from other passages that Peter regularly got put off or challenged, even chastised by Jesus. And yet he stuck with Jesus. Peter didn't have a step for Jesus. When Jesus challenged him and sanded off the rough edges, he stuck with Jesus. What's the difference? I would submit that the reason Peter stuck with Jesus is because Peter was intensely aware that despite his sin, despite his bullheadedness, despite his impetuousness and his impulsive mouth, despite everything Peter knew that Jesus had seen about him, Peter was profoundly aware that Jesus had stuck with him. And so he was going to stick with Jesus because he knew that Jesus wasn't going anywhere for him. And I think it's unlikely that Peter figured out that this was because Jesus was going to die for his sin. That Jesus would go to the cross to take Peter's sin upon himself and that his body would be broken like bread and his blood poured out like wine and in return he would give Peter his own righteousness, his own intimacy with the Father. Peter hadn't figured all that out, but he had begun to understand that Jesus was more than a rabbi. Jesus was not simply espousing a moral code that must be lived in order to satisfy a holy God. 
Peter is not simply saying, well, actually, we're just really interested in eternal life, and you are just the one who happens to be talking about it. He's saying, you are the one who speaks us into eternal life. You are the one who answers the deepest and most profound questions of the human heart. Peter is beginning to understand that Jesus, as the Holy One of God, was there to proclaim that the brokenness of the world was not the end of the story. That your brokenness and my brokenness are not the end of the story. Rather than coming to whip us into shape, Jesus has come to offer Himself the bread of life that we may feed on Him in our hearts with thanksgiving. We may be nourished, given new life. And I would say sometimes that's just a hard truth to hear. We like to be told that we can do it. We do it on our own. Just yesterday I was in the coffee shop, I was working on this sermon, and the mirror in the coffee shop uh, said, you got this. And I looked in the mirror and it said, you got this. And I said, you know what? I do got this. I'm getting ready to write. Wait a second. Uh, See, we love to be told that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. But I think that's the difference. I think that Jesus didn't come to be our cheerleader. He came to be bread. He came to be our Savior. He came to stick with you. We love Him because He first loved us. And it doesn't matter if you're sitting there waiting for the perfect pitch that's never going to come. And it doesn't matter how many times you struck out or how nervous you are or if you're holding on naively to some grand slam that you hit 34 years ago. (laughs) In three months. (laughs) Jesus is the bread of life. He is our only and all-sufficient spiritual nourishment. He is our only and all-sufficient gateway to eternal life. And so if you find yourself this morning in the first group hesitant, skeptical, could you begin to trust that Jesus has come for you to stick with you? And from that place, begin to trust that whoever feeds on His flesh and whoever drinks, in his, drinks his blood abides in Him and He in them, for He has the words of eternal life. Amen.